Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cloud Wars Live, where we have been spending the last several episodes talking with some folks about what is on everybody's mind these days, the coronavirus, the COVID-19 pandemic. Our guest today, Sean Amirati. Uh, Sean speaks with us monthly. I am Marathi on innovation. Sean is a venture capitalist. He teaches in the business school at Carnegie Mellon, where he advises uh, big companies on how to think more like startups, a serial entrepreneur, podcaster himself. And uh, Sean, how's your world been going the last few weeks? It's It's been like everybody's. It's, it's certainly unprecedented. And, you know, um, obviously, first things first is, you know, we need people to try to stay healthy and, and stay safe. So that's been most of our energy, but certainly also trying to deal with the, the business impact of, of what's going on here as well with our, with our companies and with our corporate partners, for sure. Sean, if I could, uh, you know, among your great professional accomplishments, your father, how's it been being at home, you know, with your, your family? Yeah. So, so that, I mean, that has been frankly amazing, right? I, I think, I think it's been, I haven't been on an airplane uh, in almost four weeks, which I think the last time I wasn't on an airplane for four weeks straight was about 15, 16 years ago. Right. So being able to have dinner every night uh, or almost every night with uh, my, my wife and my kids has been, been incredible they're they're healthy and and safe so that's that's great um and uh and you know it does things like this do put life in perspective and, and that's the and that's the most important thing how, how about you bob how are you doing with all of this sean i think you know just touch on one thing about the airplanes uh we had oh i don't know how many six trips uh, canceled in March and just sort of watching them, you know, ping down the line from Salt Lake City to Dublin to San Francisco, Seattle, Las Vegas. Uh, but very quickly, I've been surprised, Sean, at how unprecedented, as you said, this whole thing is. But we, the seriousness of it, and I guess the pervasiveness of it, I, I, I guess I felt like you got accustomed to this somewhat quickly because it was there's no alternative sure. and um, I think it's just the intense seriousness of it something everybody's going through and I think like everybody you find yourself thinking more and more about uh, what else is going on in the world out there uh, Sean one of the best things I heard about is some of the way that people are doing with this uh, an episode we did last week with Chris Lockhead and he came up with a term of radical generosity mm. and he said that uh, with some of his friends around that had been thinking about that. And, and Chris said, you know, so many things in our lives are changing. They're turned upside down a little bit. He said, and he said, it's just important. He said, for everybody, don't forget that you got a lot of, with all that upheaval, there's still a, a huge amount of stuff under our control. And he went through a series of things. And he said, one of the things he said, I think everybody should put down a list, make a plan. And he said, among the things you want to plan for is I have an opportunity here to be generous. How am I going to do that? Who do I want to help focus on? And where should those points be? But it's been an interesting theme and we've had some fun feedback from uh, readers and audiences about this notion of radical generosity at a time when there could be a tendency among some folks to really just close in. And I think it's so important not to do that. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And it's it's been interesting to watch, you know, 
different companies try to try to do that at the organizational level too, whether it's been, you know, tech companies that that so many of your audience would be familiar with or businesses that may not be as much in the spotlight, but still asking themselves their this this question as well. So I think on a on a personal level, that's the if if you're in a situation where you're blessed enough to like probably, you know, like you and I are and probably most of the people listening to this where you know, we have a little more um, financial cushion probably than than others do, and and also a little more resource. Like thinking about radical generosity, if you're able to do that, is I think awesome on a personal level. And you know, some companies have certainly done done the same thing at the corporate level, which has been which has been tr- tremendous as well. And I think um, you know, it's it's easy to say you're an organization that wants to make the world a better place when everything's going well, when the world is showing brittleness and brokenness in areas, it's, that's where the rubber meets the road for some of these things too. And so, you know, every company has to respond differently, just like every human does in different levels of wherewithal. But I think it's a great framework for those who are able to do it. Yeah, Sean, there's um, a couple of things I just want to mention broadly about what I've seen in the, the business world. And then to ask you, uh, on the venture capital side of what you're doing, just some observations about what's happening in your portfolio. There's a couple of things I, I have been so impressed by this notion with uh, businesses and their ability of companies that were making something in this category and then being able to pivot and say, well, we can do this over here. And it it speaks to, I think, the uh, a sense of innovation, uh, right. a sense of larger purpose, but also on an operational level that these are some pretty wild things that some companies are doing today. You know, I made handcrafted liquor one day and the next day I'm making hand sanitizer and right. Somebody right. could come and say, Oh, it's not that hard. Yeah. It's not that hard until you figure out how to do it. And then uh, suddenly it, it's, it's different, but even things like um, the CEOs of Walmart and Walgreens the other day, we're talking about how, they are drawing up pretty extensive plans that they will reconfigure parts of the parking lots there to be able to enable drive-through testing and things like that. So it, it, it is a time through all the uh, trouble and misery and, and fear that this COVID-19 is causing. There's also been a surge of, I think, really innovative thinking and operations that gives us some sense of optimism for what could be possible once we get through this nightmare. Yeah, I think that's I think that's well said. You know, the 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 one thing I think you can point to over the the history of America is that we have a competency when it comes to applying creativity and innovation to big challenges, right? You know, my when I think about like what my grandparents did in you know, the wars, right? Like like there were a lot of, I mean, that's kind of why we call them the greatest generation, right? Like they, they showed up and applied what is America and what makes America great against these problems. And I think uh, we need to have that happen against this different type of battle that we're all fighting right now. And, and the examples you're talking about, like I used to make liquor and now I make hand sanitizer. I used to make cars and now I make ventilators, right? Like that, that's that's America. That's the best part of America and American ingenuity 
showing up and, and facing the battle that, um, that, that we're currently staring down here. Sean, this is a, <clears throat> one other personal touch I thought of there when you mentioned for you, your grandparents, for me, my parents, World War II. So uh, my father was not a real talkative guy. And uh, he and my mom had been dating here before the outbreak of World War II. And uh, suddenly he was called up into the Navy and he was going to be gone. They weren't sure how long it ended up. It was two and a half years before they saw each other again. <clears throat> but uh, before he left, the question he asked my mom is, will you be here when I get back? And uh, she said, yes, I will. And as we talked to her later in her life, um, you know, I said, well, what did he mean by that? And she looked at us and sort of so I said, that was his proposal. That was his wedding proposal. Yeah. So, uh, but I think there's so many people who did that. You know what, he'd be back in six weeks, six months. It turned out to be two and a half years. And that rang true for millions of people across, you know, this country and, you know, some other countries. But I, I think there is a sense of perspective that is helpful to try to have about this. I'm glad you brought that up. And Sean, if you could, what's it like, you know, with uh, your your venture capital firm, your outlook on things has been one to help companies come in and move forward. How does a young company try to deal with this? What What's it been like? Yeah, so, so there, there's been a lot of venture firms who have put out what I would, somewhat cynically call kind of uh, deep thinking pieces that try to generalize the situation. I won't name any names because I'm about to blow that up. I, I just think that that is really unfortunate because there is not a one size fits all playbook for what we're dealing with right now. Even if you just look across our portfolio of you know roughly 30 companies, um, there are a lot of companies who have been uh, really negatively impacted by this. Um, and obviously I think this is, goes without saying, but like that's secondary, like that's secondary to health and safety and right. Like everybody across the portfolio is working from home at this point and trying to do social distancing and not, like those, that's the most important thing. And that's, that's something that every startup has to deal with. But frankly, easier than you know at on our at our lab like you know large multinational corporations with hundreds of thousands of employees like making that transition is much harder for them than it is for for a 20 person startup which is probably obvious but but they're doing that you know all of them are trying to do that but outside of that you know people try to say like here's the right playbook for you to do in this well the, the problem is um the problem with that sort of generalized advice is one we've never experienced anything like this where there's a pandemic associated with this economic recession at least the examples that the that most investors are using aren't like that like 2001 and 2008 were nothing like this from from that perspective so so those quote-unquote playbooks that worked well in those in those times um they're, they're not like this because you have the the health element of this as well the, the other part of it is um, frankly, um, for some companies, and they would obviously trade this for the lives, that, like I don't have, none of my CEOs, even the ones who this is actually a really good thing for their business, they would all tomorrow have this go away and go back to just fighting the 
the startup fight that they were fighting before this happened. But if you're in telehealth or you're in distance education, um, the reality is, and again, you would prefer this not be the case, but the reality is this is going to be the great catalyzing event for many, many startups. You know, I wrote a book in 2016 called The Science of Growth, where we looked at pairs of companies and asked ourselves, why did one company take off and the other one didn't, right? Why is a third of the internet at that time running on top of WordPress and nobody's using movable type? Why are people driving Teslas and not Fiskars? Why does almost everybody listening to this have a Facebook account and almost nobody listening to this or probably nobody listening to this have a Friendster account, right? And so we, we did this, this research where we looked at each of those case stories where companies got to about the same point at the same point in time and one took off and one didn't and asked ourselves why and kind of generalized out a model from that around how do you kind of scale once you have a good product and a good market. And, and one of the things that we saw is that in almost every case, there was what we called a catalyzing event, something that, that really catalyzed the growth of that business. And some companies took advantage of those catalyzing events and some, some didn't. And there are different types of catalyzing events, but one of them is like th these, these events happen in the world and a startup, some startups take advantage of it and some don't. The reality is in telehealth and distance learning and frankly, in some other areas of digital transformation around some legacy industries, this is the catalyzing event for, for those trends that have been kind of brewing and, and slowly happening. So uh, we have some companies that, that this, has been, um, this has been a real catalyst for, for them, and it's, it's made their, their solutions even more important and more necessary. Um, that's, that's great. You know, it's, it's, it's terrible in the macro sense of the word. Like I, I would much rather not have this happen, but, but, but we are where we are. And part of being a good executive is dealing with the facts in front of you and, and reacting to them. On the other hand, we have some businesses that have uh, kind of the opposite going on where this is, this is, this is really challenging um, for them and for, for what their business model is. And, and I think you see this in the economy at large as well. You know, I would not want to be in the hospitality space today. I would not want to be in the travel business today. Um, and, uh, and so there's some, some sectors that I think are getting disproportionately negatively affected. Um, and for those, you know, what we're saying, what we're trying to work with them on is, um, in general, I think when you face a crisis like this, it's important to make sure that you err on the side of overcorrecting versus undercorrecting. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it, it did not have the health issues that we are dealing with today. But, you know, I was running a startup when the 2008 recession hit. And a lot of my colleagues, like they made cut after cut after cut because they just didn't, they, they didn't want to deal with the reality of it up front. And I think those businesses often died by those thousand cuts. Um, some, you know, if you were selling to financial services in 2008, um, the worst thing you could do was not make hard pivots on your business model immediately. And so for these sectors where that's going on, it's important to to overcorrect, not undercorrect, overcommunicate, not undercommunicate. The other thing that we just, we, it's just too early to tell is we don't know what this is going to mean in terms of just liquidity for, 
for future financing rounds um, across the, the 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 sector right now. And so so businesses across the board, even those who are doing really well, they need to have plans that that give them 12 to 18 months of runway where they control their own destiny for that. That means not dependent on external financing. It'll be interesting to see how this ultimate legislation plays out around the SBA loans and if venture back companies can can receive that or not. Um, I think in the the first version of the bill that we're recording this Thursday morning. So the first version that that came out last night on on Wednesday night, um, inadvertently, and I'm 99.99% sure this was inadvertent, but inadvertently, uh, that version of the bill included some provisions that were, I think, well-meaning provisions, but basically will end up excluding all venture-backed companies from receiving those funds. Uh, I know the National Venture Capital Association is working hard to at least make sure the legislators who are writing this are making that choice intentionally or correcting that if that was unintentional. So the, it's actually a very simple explanation. Because most VC firms are what would be described as major shareholders in startups, right? And, and you know, there are different percentages that you could use to define that, but it's some roughly 10 to 20% is kind of generally how that's used. I think in the bill is actually not defined, which is another what happens when you quickly try to get legislation out the door. But, um, but regardless, any major shareholder cannot in aggregate have holdings that employ more than 500 people. Well, any decent venture portfolio is going to, across all of the portfolio companies, have more than 500. Like if you're, if you're good at your job, you're going to trip that, that switch. And, the, and so what the, and that makes sense, right? Because this is supposed to be for small businesses. So you don't want a, a startup that employs a thousand people necessarily taking advantage of the SBA loan. Other people should take advantage of that. But across a portfolio, like this is going to be a, a, a really unintentional provision. Now, hopefully that gets fixed. But, but to me, this actually illustrates, uh, and I hope they fix this. Like it, I think the, the spirit of what they were trying to do is also to support the next great innovative companies that this this doesn't become what what disrupts them because frankly that's all those companies in five to ten years are going to be major employers those are the the googles and the facebooks and the apples of the world in five to ten years and you don't want a blip like this to be what interrupts building those companies so i hope that gets fixed but even if but to me it also illustrates this point even if it doesn't it's really important that those companies figure out how to give themselves 12 to 18 months of runway so that they control their own destiny. Because being a good executive in situations like this, you, you can't wait for somebody to come and, and fix your problems. You've got to be proactively controlling your own destiny in these situations. Yeah, Sean, that's an interesting uh, sweep of perspectives there across some things that are going on. It, you know, part of your outlook has always been who is going to be this next great company? Who is going to revolutionize some other, uh, you know, important industry that affects so many lives around the world? So, Sean, I, I want to close maybe with a question for you um, about uh, things you've learned here that we've all learned that will be helpful in some way, despite the fact we wish we hadn't had to, you know, go through this and learn it. But what do you take from this that you will share both in your work at Carnegie Mellon and your work as a venture capitalist and, you know, all the other things you do as an author and podcaster? What, what's going to be at the top of your head? Here's a lesson that was very 
hard-earned and let's make sure it's applied into the future. Yeah, there's a, um, there's a great Warren Buffett quote, which is, you can tell who's swimming with no clothes on when the tide goes out. Uh, and um, we, we typically use that in board meetings when it feels like companies are swimming a little too close to the knife's edge of, of leverage and uh, trying to, to often maximize some minor things at the potential expense of the longer term vision. And I think, frankly, this is true inside a global company. It's also true inside an, a 10 person company, like that, that framework of, you know, the, the tides come in and out or economic cycles boom and then they bust. Um, and I, I think mostly I'm pretty proud that across our portfolio and across all the companies I've worked with, I think most companies have done a pretty good job of making sure that they're, they were um, doing their best to not be too levered up in those situations. But I think the, the thing that, I mean, I'm sure there'll be others as well, but I think one of the things that will be in a, a good sort of top of mind thing going forward is, you know, when we've thought about that historically, we've thought about kind of what across the last century have been minor booms and bust cycles. Like 2001 was tough and 2008 was tough, but neither of those were, were great recession tough. And I think um, it's a real, it's a real reminder that um, I think this will keep many companies much more top of mind to make sure they're, they're keeping that in balance going forward. Um, and hopefully we'll, uh, hopefully we'll um, get to the, I mean, we will get to the other side of this. Not every company will get to the other side of this, but, but we as a society, I believe are going to get to the other side of this. And I think when we're building these corporate and traditional startups in the future, hopefully uh, have better perspective on sort of the, from an economic perspective that the cycles we're living through. Yeah, Sean, I, I know that, uh, as you mentioned that thing about, you know, when the tide goes out, we find out who's swimming naked. And I think one of the naked, uh, one of the skinny dippers in all of this has been over a number of years, decades, probably that, uh, pharmaceutical companies based in U.S. outsourcing the manufacturing and supply of these, you know, extraordinary drugs and medicines had that outside our borders. Uh, and I, that, that is, I think, going to be one of the examples of these, uh, uh, you know, a shutdown on this type of skinny dipping. Yeah, or, or, or share buybacks, right? Like, it's not that there's anything necessarily wrong. And in fact, I think there's some amount of good government involved in if you have capital on your balance sheet using some of it to, to purchase shares. But let's be real, like what some of these companies have been doing over the last five years in terms of share back buybacks to inflate their stock and, and live right on that razor's edge, um, you know, like they're going to get thrashed now. And, and, you know, some of that, unfortunately, is capitalism alive and well you know, um, and on the startup side, right? Like, you know, there are companies who had really good offers to raise money three months ago that held out to try to get, you know, a 5% higher valuation. And I guarantee you they'd, they'd prefer to have that in place or, or, or lines of credit 
sort of break glass lines of credit. You know, if you don't, if you didn't put those in place when the times were good, you're, or worse, if you drew it and used it. So, so there, there's, I think there's some, there's some, there's some examples of the swimming naked that, that happen, you know, and there is a, there is an expanding and contracting nature to, to how these, how these economic cycles work. Um, but we need to, we need to make sure we, we remember this when we are on the other, other side of it, which I feel like is kind of what I said at the end of 2001 and at the end of 2008 too. But I think that's just sort of the, the nature of how humans deal with these types of things. Yes. Lifelong learning uh, and so forth. Well, Sean, I certainly hope uh, when we get together uh, three or four weeks from now, I hope we'll have some additional learnings, maybe some things to exchange there, but also some um, reason for some additional optimism. And I hope we're much closer to that other side that you've described here today. Yep, me too. All right. Thanks, Bob. Sean, thank you. Thanks as always, Sean Amorati, for being with us. And to all of you folks out there, stay safe, stay healthy. Thank you for being with us.